Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. Time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. Welcome to another edition of Pound Time Podcast. I am Brother L. Diazobra, formerly named Lyman White. Thank you for joining us today. Today I have a special guest, a special friend, uh, someone we got a lot of history together. We've been talking, he's been keeping up with the podcast, and I really, really appreciate him uh, tuning in on our podcast on a regular basis. And we just want to have a, a great conversation. Now, this is going to be unusual because it's for, really is the first time we can be doing this, but we got a segment we call the Living Legend segment. And this is going to be considered one of our living legends. Yes, Greg is one of our living legends, but we're going to be speaking about another living legend. So right now, I want to introduce my dear friend and uh, teammate, and we go back a long ways, and I thank you for being here, Mr. Greg LaFleur. Thank you for having me, Lyman. I'm excited to see you. Thank you for, for coming out here, Greg. Uh, I know you've been traveling all over the world. Every time I speak with you, you're in another place, another country, and you, uh, I think you moved. Huh? Where are you located? Yeah, well, I'm living in Seattle, Washington now. I've been blessed that I've been able to travel all over the world for the last couple of years. You know, I've been to France, England, Germany, Italy, Colombia, Mexico, just Tokyo, Japan, just okay. to name a few. That's, that's a few. Yeah. <laughs> a few major ones, too. Yeah. Now, I'm going to be even more honored when you say Africa next time, a well, country that, in Africa. That, that's next on my list. All next right, spring, we plan to go to uh, Spain and then Africa. We're going to North Africa then. Yeah. Uh, Morocco, maybe something Correct. like that. Because that's where the great Moors came from who conquered Spain and ruled Spain for 700 years. I know you know about that history, right? Not as well as you do because <laughs> you've been to Africa. And that's one, one reason I want to go is because when you came back from Africa, you were telling me how great the trip was. So uh, when the opportunity presented itself, I thought about you. I'm like, well, Lama told me how great Africa was, so I need to make that trip. Well, I forgot we had a, some conversation about that back then. It, it did a lot. It, it took me somewhere that I didn't even anticipate on being mentally and spiritually. It was a rude awakening. It was a, a great awakening. Also, it made me a little frustrated, irritated because I felt I'd been lied to, hook-winged, bamboos. I've been had, like, a, like the great ex said, by the system. They taught us uh, it's almost like in our podcast, we say for all so long, the system have taught you what to think. Count time is here to teach you how to think. So I'm trusting and believing that that's what count time is doing. That's what count time has been able to do. And today we're going to have a special uh, dialogue conversation. We're going to be talking about another one of LSU legends, Mr. Billy Cannon. A few weeks ago, no, probably about a month ago, Greg uh, Carver to tell me about one of the podcasts he had heard and what he thought about it. <clears throat> he was excited, elated. Uh, regarding the Coach Lynn LeBlanc, what did you tell me about Coach Lynn LeBlanc podcast? Uh, it was one of the best interviews I've ever heard, at least sports interview I've ever heard, because it was so in-depth. And I don't know how other people would receive that information, because if you didn't play sports, I don't know how you'd hear it. But if you were a football player or anybody that was involved in sports, that was one of the most enlightening uh, interview I've heard. He touched me for when a good friend can call and tell you that that that's, that goes a long ways. And I truly, truly appreciate that, and I truly appreciate you being here. And because of that, 
he got excited and started telling me about a book he read. Yes, Greg and the flu and I do read. <laughs> We're not just the dub jocks. He was so excited and elated. He was just filled with joy about this book. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about the book right quick. Well, you know, when I listened to your interview with Coach Lynn LeBlanc, he started talking about certain things that I read in the book. And when I called you, I'm like, Lyman, you would really enjoy this book because some of the stuff Coach LeBlanc said in, the, uh, in your interview, I had already read it in the book. But the interesting thing was I was headed to Columbia, Bogota, Columbia, and I was in San Antonio, and I needed to get a book because I can't speak Spanish. So I needed a book to read while I'm in Colombia. So, you know, during my downtime, at least I'll be reading because I can't go and talk to anybody. So I was just looking for a book and I was in the bookstore browsing around and I saw this book with Billy Cannon's picture on it. I'm like, well, if I'm gonna get a book, I might as well get the one about Billy Cannon. I'm not doing anything, so I'll just read that book. And man, that book shook me up. I was, because I can relate to everything that he talked about in that book because I knew Billy Cannon from 1972, he and uh, Paul Hardy, the agriculture, Commissioner of Agriculture, Gil Dozier, flew to Ville Platte. And I picked, and, and uh, Billy Cannon was with those two guys. And when I picked them up at the little airport outside of Ville Platte and drove them to my parents' house to meet with my father, my father said, do you know who that guy is? I'm like, no, I don't know who he is. He said, well, that's Billy Cannon. I'm like, who's Billy Cannon? He said, well, he won the Heisman Trophy. So then I started paying attention to Billy Cannon. And, you know, he was at my parents' house, and I'm sitting there looking at this guy that was built so well. He had only been out of the league like three or four years. So, and a few years later, I get recruited by LSU. And now Billy Cannon and I have something in common. We both went to LSU. So that's how my interest started in Billy Cannon. That's pretty interesting that he came to your house. He came to my house. Yeah, okay. Uh, they were campaigning for the 1972 election. The first election Edwin Edwards won. And Gil Dozier and Paul Hardy was on that ticket back then. You got to tell me who your daddy is. My father was Gervis LaFleur. And uh, he was Edwin Edwards' right-hand man back in 1972 when he was running for governor for the first time. You, got, you have a lot of history with uh, this state, with, this, uh, with LSU. And your dad made a big, had a big impact on you coming to LSU and getting you involved with the community. So, I mean, we, he has a whole lot of history and we appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I only know Billy by way of LSU. Brandon, one of the first golf tournaments I was invited to was probably Sherwood, Sherwood sure. Country Club. Yeah. And, and I might have been, been me and one other brother there. Because uh, he lived in Sherwood Forest at the time. Okay. And uh, that was my first time meeting him at a golf tournament probably in... Uh, Early, early 80s, like 81, possibly. So that was my first time meeting him and Jim Taylor. They both was very respectful, just very considered. They, they accommodated me. They knew I was kind of like out of, out of place to, in a lot of ways, but he was, they was very accommodating and very, very a good guy. <clears throat> so when Greg, he was so enthused and excited about the book, he said, he told me, I need to read it. I'm thinking, man, I got some other stuff going on. <laughs> I'm trying to read the book right now. But he was so uh, enthusiastic, enthusiastic about, it. about it where I said, no, I'm going to I'm gonna have to read this book. So I got the book, started reading it, and it, it is. It's an awesome book. The book is titled Billy Cannon, A Long, Long Run. 
book probably was written about four or five years ago, right, uh, right before his, uh, his his transition when he, before he passed on, and it's a, the book covers a whole lot of his history, and uh, even from I did not know Billy Cannon was from Mississippi originally. I didn't either. So it just that was a great yeah. learning part right there. And Sober Mississippi, how you call that? I, I can't remember his hometown. N e s h a b o. Yeah. The Sober, the Sober Mississippi, from Philadelphia, Mississippi. So he grew up in a little small town, uh, and his mom, his dad, dad name was Harvest, Harvey, right. Harvey. Yeah, Harvey. And his mom name was Virgin. And it was a pretty good history. Let's talk about uh, what the, the enthusiastic. Matter of fact, we did. We got to determine this. Our, this is gonna be our first show. We talk. We discussing a book. I guess we gonna. Uh, we uh, I got the great scholar Greg Lafleur here. <laughs> <laughs> so we are gonna be like intellectuals. I don't know what to call this segment. I guess we will call count time. <laughs> Booking club, huh? not, not book club, booking club. Yeah, huh? yeah. So I, I don't know, but I appreciate you uh, sending me a copy of the book. The book was really, really uh, first class, a very engaging, very honest. You know, he, he brought forth a lot of information about himself. And what got me about the book, Lyman, was that I've known Billy Cannon since 1972. And then when I came to LSU, you know, I, I got to know him even closer. And then when that incident happened with him, he kind of became a, a recluse. And so, and I always wondered why there hadn't been a book written or a movie written, uh, made by, about Billy Cannon. And come to find out, uh, when I read the book, Billy Cannon didn't want a book written by, about him or a movie done about him. Because he could have made a lot, a lot of money had he had a movie made by him, about him. But that was not his thing. And he said in the book, the only reason he let this writer write this book is because that guy worked at the penitentiary with him. He was a, a, a minister at, the, at, the, at Angola. And he trusted the guy. And he finally decided to uh, do an interview with this guy and allowed him to write this book. And that was toward the end of his life because he didn't want people to totally know about him until toward the end. And that's what I thought that was what was interesting when I first picked up the book. Now, what that movie came out years ago when we was getting out of college? Uh, I can't think of, but and he it, talks about it in the book, and that said, they were trying to portray him, but that was not about him. Right. They've tried to make a movie about him, but it didn't, uh, it, that was not. That uh, was the movie, but it, it did. But the movie we know was really dealing with the, they was attempting to portray the exactly. Billy Cannon, but it was not the, the true right, story. Right. They didn't know really have the story. And I'm sorry that slipped my mind the name of that movie. Yeah, because we all remember when they were filming yeah. that movie here in yeah, Baton Rouge. Because I, you know, I was looking, at, I looked at the movie a few months back, right, and and I did not know Coach Stam Nader was in the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was interesting to, to see Coach Nader had a pretty, you know, with the camera, comic, what they call that. Cameo, cameo, cameo appears, yeah. right? And I was looking, uh, coach, coach in the movie, but it was a, it was, was it a the Eye of the Tiger? No, 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 no. Tiger. That was not it. As we well know, because a lot of guys yeah. went out to, to, uh, they, they, they asked former athletes to come out, try out for the movie, right? And a lot of players went out, and I saw some of the guys in the movie, yeah. Uh, so it was pretty good, but I, but the, the dilemma was when Billy Cannon played, there wouldn't too many of us. Playing at the time, so that would that would made it kind of hard too for yeah. any of us. But but Billy, in his book, and in 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 life too, he was very 
he, he respected all people. You know, like the time he did see me, matter of fact, one of the last times I really spent some time talking with him was when Nick Saban was in town, when Nick Saban won the national championship. I had a bunch of footballs I went to get signed. And Coach Saban signed the books, when I, the balls, rather. And when I came out of the, uh, the facility with the balls, Billy Cannon was coming across the street. I said, Billy. So he said, hey, how you doing? We started talking, we started engaging. So he said, uh, I said, man, I got, where you got all them, all them damn balls? <laughs> I, said, yeah. I said, I just got him signed. I said, he was for some friends of mine who asked for uh, you know, one of the few national championships they had since your days, right? Yeah. Yes, and I said, I went and got him signed. I said, I need for you to sign about two or three of them. I said, what my name would be? Why you want my name on? I said, well, I just, just since you here, you was on the, the first uh, national, national championship, championship team, right. I said, so it's going to be, you might have that much more of a value. I don't know what happened to the balls, don't know where they are, but he did sign about, I had about eight, and he signed about three of them yeah. for me. So that was the last time I seen him. But let's talk, what, where we want to start at next, but what, what, what part that really captured you? And, and I hope everybody go out and buy this book because you really enjoy it, particularly if you're an LSU fan or a person that grew up in Louisiana. It's not just an LSU book, it's a, really a Louisiana book. But <clears throat> what stood out the most was that, and, more, and I don't want to say too much about the book because I want people to read it, but I want to talk about this because this is knowledge that you can find anywhere else. The thing about Billy Cannon that I heard about that when I first came to Baton Rouge in 76 to go to LSU, Billy Cannon is the first athlete to lift weights. Most people don't realize that. Uh, weightlifting was taboo for sports back in the day. People thought weightlifting would make you slow and muscle bound, that type of stuff. Well, there was a gentleman named Alvin Roy <clears throat> who was from Ostrumer High School and he was in the military. And because he traveled all over the world, like Russia, Germany, and the Russians and the Germans were always beating the U.S. in powerlifting. Well, he learned what they were doing in Europe, and he brought that same method back to Baton Rouge. So he went back to his high school, Astruma High School, and he went to talk to the uh, head football coach and ask him, could he let him work out with the football team? Well, that was such a taboo to lift weights to play football. The coach was like, oh, I don't know about that. Who's, who's the coach? Uh, Fuzzy Brown, Coach Fuzzy Brown. That's correct. That's correct. And, and uh, so he said, well, look, I'll let you work with the track team. So he first worked with the track team, and Billy Cannon was on the track team. And Billy Cannon's speed increased so much that it convinced the football coach, okay, I'll let you work with the football team. Well, Billy Cannon is the only person I know of my entire life that won the 100-yard dash and the shot put in the right. state track meet. Right. Those two competitions just don't add up, you know? Either you're a sprinter or a jumper or a field guy, but to win the shot put and the 100-yard dash and 200 in the state meet. So that proved that weightlifting increased your speed, your size, and your, uh, and your quickness. So, not only did he win the state track meet, his high school team won the state championship in football his junior year. And then they won the state championship again his senior year. And would have it that Paul Dietzel came to recruit uh, Billy Cannon to come to LSU. Well, Alvin Roy convinced 
Paul Dietzel, and Paul Dietzel was against it. But he convinced Paul Dietzel to lift weights. Well, LSU was the first college football team in the nation to lift weights. They won the national championship in 1959. And then uh, Billy Cannon not only won the Heisman Trophy, he was the first player picked in the draft. And I didn't know that. I didn't know he was the first player picked in the draft. Now, he didn't go to the NFL because the year he got drafted in the NFL, they started the AFL. And then Billy Cannon went to the Houston Oilers. And he stayed with the Oilers. Then he went to the Raiders. Yeah, he first signed with the Rams. Uh, matter of fact, the, the, the book said that he signed his contract after the the Sugar Bowl game? Yeah, yeah, After right, the game, right. On the field. On the field. And then the Oilers got him out of that contract. And, you know, then he... And at that time, I think the contract was worth 30000 a year? Yeah, something like and that. And that was like a multi-million dollar contract, right. you know, back in those days. And the other thing that was interesting about the book is that while he was playing professional football, he went to medical school in the offseason. And Lama, you know how hard it is just to play football. <laughs> I can't imagine going to medical school during the offseason and to prepare to play in the National Football League at the same time. I'm like, I was amazed to read all this stuff. And in, in to learn that, that Billy, when he moved from Mississippi, they had a farm. Uh, his dad had a farm. They lost the farm. Right. Moved to, Memphis, moved to ten Memphis, Tennessee. They moved to another part of Tennessee to, looking for work. Then Standard R... Uh, during the time of the of World War One, I, I believe, or World War One, World War One, yeah, you know, Standard R in Baton Rouge, which now, which now we call Exxon, was hired because they was producing a lot of R, rubber, yeah. whatever they need for the military. So there was a lot of money in the Baton Rouge area. So he said the family moved here uh, for dad to to get some work, and Billy. That's where he began to, he got in a lot of trouble even back then. He right. talked about the you know, right, trouble right. that he got into. He was called himself a little, they called him a thug. Yeah, yeah. You know? So before, before the word thug was popular, they said it was, they was calling him a thug back then. Yeah. And that's the part, you know, I, I would like for people to read because I had no idea he failed in the eighth grade. <laughs> and then when he repeated the eighth grade the second time, he made all A's. And his, you know, he never had trouble with school after he flunked the first time in the eighth grade. And everybody realized he was a great student as well. Matter of fact, he said uh, he was really, he, was, he wasn't a big guy at all. You know, it wasn't yeah. until his junior senior year where he put on a, on a lot of weight. He weighed, I, I think, 125, Something 1, like 150. That. Right. Most of, you know, uh, first year or two in high school. But he had great speed. So the speed was there. But when he put on that, when Alvin Roy came about, and Alvin Roy was here when we first got to LSU. Yeah, Alvin Roy was around the Baton Rouge area when we got to LSU. But he was the speed coach for the Dallas Cowboys, strength and conditioning coach for the Cowboys around that time. But Alvin Roy built the first gym in the United States. So you see those Anytime Fitnesses, Planet all those gyms, the first gym was built in Baton Rouge in 1955, and it was on Oklahoma Street, right across where the old Prince Murat was. If you went across the street on Oklahoma Street, there was an old house to the left. That's right off of Nicholson Drive. Right off of Nicholson Drive. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> the house was on the left, and, and they, they uh, turned it into a, a gym. 
And when I first got to LSU, my first time going to a weight room was at that Alvin Roy gym. Yeah. And that was back in the summer of 1976. And then we started working out. Uh, they made a weight room in the stadium. It was not very big. So when you first got to LSU, there was no weight room in the they stadium? They had one, but they would still work out at Alvin Roy's gym, yeah, too. I know. When I got here, a lot of guys were still going to oh, Alvin Oh, so you room. heard about it, too? Yeah. When I, I came the next year, right. people were still... Going, going. A lot of guys wanted, wanted to be. He wasn't there as much anymore. Right. But a lot of guys wanted him to. Uh, well, I didn't realize it was still there when you came. Yeah, the gym was still there. Okay. Because a lot, lot of, lot of guys was going. Yeah. I, I never went. I don't yeah. remember ever going. Well, there. I went there the first time I got here. I went to the Alvin Roy's gym before I even went to the LSU's weight room. So Billy flunked in the eighth grade. Repeated the eighth grade. Went back to school with a different attitude and decided he was going to do better for himself. And he excelled in, in uh, academics. So he knew that he was capable of doing the work. Not knowing that he was going to excel to the level he did in sports. So he was a three sports guy, right? Yeah. Basketball, football, Basketball and track. At track and field. And he done exceptionally well in all three, but he said he was better in track, then football, then basketball. Right. <laughs> so that was pretty interesting to know that, that Billy, uh, you know, played. But it, there was one thing that happened to him that his dad, his dad got hurt uh, working at Exxon, Exxon Standard right. R at the time. He was, uh, he, he was the tool man, I guess. He did a lot of uh, I guess what we call mechanical type of work right. now, you know, repairing, uh, working on different uh, pipes or whatever it might be. And he slipped off top of a scaffold, fell on, hurt himself, and never really recovered, never was able, never was able to go back to work. Well, they amputated his leg. They amputated his leg after yeah. about almost a year. They yeah. amputated his leg. So he wasn't able to go back to work. So he became the wife. Virgil had to go to work, and he had to stay home and be stay-at-home mom, which uh, affected his two boys, Billy and Harvey Jr. Harvey was what, about three years, four years older than Billy. Yeah, maybe two years older than Billy. And two he or three did, years older. And, than and he Billy. did well in sports too. Right. He, he yeah, went they to won a state championship with his brother. Two in a row. Yeah. His brother won two in a row. In football. Football. In football. Yeah. So. You know, all of us at the legs. Now, what the interesting thing about the story, Billy said that his dad told him that their genes came from, the athletic genes came from where? You remember that part? No, help me with that. Came from when they lived in uh, Mississippi. He said their great-grandmother was married to an Indian. Yes. And he said it came from the Indian side of the family. And that was pretty interesting Yeah, when he talked about that. See, you remember this. You just read it because I read this a while back. Right, right. And uh, you're you bringing all this back to me. Yeah, that was because I'm saying, well, hold on, now, Indians. So, yeah. I mean, you know, they got a, you know, he got a combination of uh, genes and, with him. And I was, you know, and also he talked about when Billy talked, he made, Billy made a point to make a comment about his best friend when he was a real young boy. It was a little black boy in Mississippi that he hung with, that he grew up with. In Tennessee, that he yeah. he got to know, and that was it, like one of his close close friend, and it was just you know he made certain points and emphasis on certain things that he thought wasn't that I guess he was important to him in his growth his growth, right. 
And when he came to Louisiana, basically what he was saying that Mississippi was more integrated than Louisiana. Right, right. <laughs> so Because he never played with a black player, you know, neither in high school, college, and once he got to professional football, that was the first time he ever had a black teammate. But when he was growing up around the Astruma area, he always played with the black kids. If you remember that part mm -hmm. of it, he, you know, he played with the black kids. So it was, uh, he had no prejudice in him. He, uh, he looked at people as they were, and uh, he didn't have any bias toward anyone. And right. you could tell when you met him, he was that oh, way. Yeah. yeah, he treated everybody, he was just, just straight up type of guy. Yeah. And you know, then you start thinking about LSU. LSU was one of the last teams to do what? LSU was the last team in the nation to integrate its athletics. Uh, <clears throat> Even Ole Miss and Mississippi State had integrated. The Southeastern Conference, the conference that LSU belongs to, was the last conference in the nation to integrate, and LSU was the last school in the conference to integrate. LSU was dead last when it came to integrating its athletics department. Matter of fact, uh, when you and I were there, we had some tough times uh, dealing with things at LSU because we was we wasn't the first, but we were still close to it. We right, wasn't we right. weren't that far behind, and there was a lot of issues and concerns when it, when it came to what they call black and white, right? Back, right. back then, and we uh, we're not going to talk about a lot of that right now. But it was a lot of a lot of different disconcernment. Yeah, you see, Lyman, the first black athlete to play at LSU was Collis Temple in 1969. And it took two or three years later for LSU to have its first black football player. And that was Mike Williams and Laura Hinton. So that was 1972. And I got to LSU in 76. Uh, Mike Williams had just finished his last year. I didn't get to play with Mike and Laura. The college got there in 1970. Oh, was it 70? Okay. Right. I started with but, you know, neither of us got had a chance to play with the great Mike William and Laura Hinton. Matter of fact, it's just now, I think this coming Monday, they're voting to see if Laura Hinton can be on the Hall of LSU Hall of Fame. Uh, so that they're going to be voting this Monday okay. at LSU to make him, uh, you know, why not? I mean, yeah. you know, he's, he's, he's an outstanding man in the community. Hard worker, and uh, he he done his he done his part to right. to deserve it. But uh, Billy was very versatile in a lot of ways. You know, not just his personality, the way he treat people. He had this what they call a bad boy kind of attitude too. That that uh, like that John Wayne and Elvis Presley. Kind yeah. of, yeah. <laughs> you know, he was a good looking young man, and uh, he he had a Unique kind of person that he he wasn't afraid. He, you know, he right. stood for what he believed, and he and he took a chance. You know, he would, you know, I didn't, I could not believe that he would just go out and rob people. So he was doing things like that at a right, right, at a young age. Yeah, like, they were hitting up on people when he was a junior in high school. He almost didn't play his senior year in high school. Uh, they had to make an exception for him to play because he was in trouble. He got in trouble, and finally the courts dropped it or what. I can't remember the details right now because I read the book. Uh, uh, a while back, but uh, thank God that the uh, judicial system dropped it, and then he could go on and play his senior year. Right, because uh, Billy, uh, after his dad Harvey gotten hurt, 
There was no money coming in. That's correct. And him and his brother, Billy Stewart, also he said he worked at uh, Manda's Meat Market, right. which is still located right downtown now uh, near, near the state capitol. And he worked there as a young boy, he said, packing and unpacking chicken and sausage and, and, and a whole a half of a, a cow, he said. Yeah. So he was, he was a hard-working young man, but when his dad got hurt, that was they was all traumatized by that because his dad being the you know the breadwinner bread and yeah. the, the stable part of the family, and the mom didn't work at all. So after a while, he had to figure out how to you know, how to survive, how to keep money in his pocket. So he was out there thugging it, I guess. Right. And uh, committing different, you know, he, the people in the community told it their daughters don't mess with him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you know, yeah. he's a thug. You know, stay away from him. And but because of everybody, the coaches, his teammates, the teachers, everybody liked him. They knew he was a, a smart, smart guy. He knew he was a good guy. So they really would, was doing all they can to help him to make sure that he succeeded in life. And they all knew about the situation right. with, the, with his dad. But Billy also talked about, and this, I guess this is why I really liked the book too. He emphasized that at the Strumer Games that although there was none, not one player of African descent on the team, they would allow them to go to come watch the games. They would allow them to go in the south part of the stadium to watch the game. Right. But Billy told a story too that, that came along with that, that Billy worked hustling, selling, selling programs, programs yeah. at Memorial Stadium when Khaled High played and when Southern University played. Right. And he said that he used to watch the great Ozzy Posey. You remember that yeah, guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Ozzy Posey was a running back for Southern University. He said he watched Ozzy Posey scooting as Alja uh, he was and how he moved through the holes and he made all these long runs. He said that's who he wanted to be like, Ozzy Posey. Now <laughs> 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 that's... That was interesting to me, but you know, he that's that was his idol, Ozzy Posey. Yeah, yeah. And Ozzy Posey was a the, uh, one of the best running backs, and a, he was a tennis player at Southern. And he played, I can't remember who he played for, but he played in the NFL for, for, couple, for a few years, and he owned a gas station. The last time I saw Ozzy Posey, it was quite a while ago. He had he was owning some, a couple of businesses in North Baton Rouge at the time. Okay. So I don't know if you remember no, Ozzy Posey. Well, I knew of him. But I don't. I never met him. Yeah. Well, he he was in Baton. He lived yeah. in Baton Rouge for quite quite some yeah. time. I, I I believe he passed in Baton Rouge because he had a gas station right there in North Baton Rouge. But he also had another business. I can't remember what type of business it was because a, a friend of mine played. My friends and my dad played with him, and that's how I had a chance to meet him. Oh, okay. And everybody was bragging on how great of a, yeah. a running back, how smooth a runner he was. But they just talked about it. But they used to read Billy Cannon book, and he make. Quite a few reference about the great Ozzy Posey. That's who he wanted to be like, yeah, yeah. you know. And I guess Billy Cannon had a little something to do with the things we got involved with when we got to LSU. And I thought it was interesting when he talked about how he sold his tickets in high school to make a little extra money. You know, he'd buy the tickets, <laughs> then he'd inflate the price a little bit, and he'd go out and sell those tickets and. And uh, people couldn't believe he, he would buy so many tickets at one time because, like, he won't be able to sell those tickets. But he did and made money. 
Well, when he got to LSU, he did the same thing. Right. And when we got to LSU, I didn't know where that originated from, but I think maybe that's where that came from when we got to LSU. I had heard that Billy would buy whole sections of, yes. of LSU tickets, just whole sections, because that's why he wanted to win, because he figured, right. if I buy the tickets he, and he we win. He to sell out the stadium because he could sell his tickets. <laughs> he sell he his had tickets. a different motivation back then. <laughs> He was a businessman. He was a businessman. So you look at that ways to you know make it make it for himself and his family, right. which was pretty ingenious. And, and 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 the ticket manager at LSU at the time, they couldn't understand what he was doing when he bought all those tickets at one time because it was a risk because if LSU were not selling out, the first time they ever sold out was when, and you heard Coach LeBlanc talk about it on your show when they played together, they had that first sellout at LSU at that time. So he bought all those tickets, and they were able to sell out the stadium. So he made good on his on the risk that he took. He, he did very well. He, yeah. And when we was there, uh, that was. Let me talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> but we 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 did sell our tickets. But also, Billy talked about not just selling the tickets. He, I can't remember that part. I, I can't even bring it back. I'm working to bring it back. Memory fills me on that one. I want to bring it back, but this wasn't telling the tickets. Another aspect of that that he had figured out, but also he talked about, and and this way I really I really connected with it. I don't, you remember the, the great Ed Parton? Yeah, Ed Parton. You know, he talked teams. about Ed Parton in, yeah. in the book. My junior year, I worked for Ed Parton. Did you ever work for it? I never worked for Ed Parton, but y'all got paid well. Got <laughs> paid very well. <laughs> and, and I always wanted to get on. See, only the star players got to work as a team <laughs> with Ed Parton. But people like me, I had to do that, you know, hard labor job. Yeah. But no, you had to be a, you had to be special to work with Ed Parton. Oh, I didn't you didn't know even that. realize that. I because, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Not everybody got to work with well, Ed Parton. I had a chance to work with Ed. Like you say, he looked out for us. He, he put me in. Partner Quinn, uh, we went over there to Big Cajun. Yeah, and then he called me in to come, and he was, you know, we'd all everybody would meet Ed Parton at this hotel on on Airline Highway. I can't remember the name of the hotel. The Belmont. It was the Belmont. It was the Belmont. It was the Belmont. It was further back down on the coming back south. Okay. It might have been it was the Belmont. That little hotel that's it's a little small place right next to. All-star cars, car dealership line. That's where we used to go meet him all the okay. time. Him and his partner, Big Bill, what do you call him? I think Big Bill. I can't remember his name. He was a guy like the bouncer. <clears throat> so he would ask to meet us there, and we would have we would sit to eat with him. Right. We didn't realize until we until we left years later that we really was a lot. All of us was in danger because <laughs> that important people. Had threats out on his life. We didn't even know that. Yeah, he was close friends with Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa. Who, yeah. yeah he, he testified against Hoffa. Yeah. So I, I, we need to blame LSU for putting us in harm free. Because <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know that all that was going on. Only the superstars. See, uh, you didn't uh, even realize you were a superstar. No, I didn't know nothing about you got, that. You, you got to work with Ed Pard and the Teamsters. I worked at Big Cajun too, but I was a laborer. <laughs> I had to go to the local... Union place. <laughs> get your check. <laughs> to get a sign to go work somewhere as a laborer. But the, 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 the star players got to work as teamsters where y'all just got to ride a truck, just drive around in a truck. 
And we were out there shoveling, digging ditches, and so you could put pipes in the ground at big Cajun when they were, uh, I worked with the pipe but, fitters, but I had to, we were the ones digging the ditches but, so they could put the pipes in. But we had to come pick y'all up, drop y'all back off, so. Yeah, that's what y'all did. Y'all picked us up and dropped <laughs> They took care of the plant, the stars. So Billy said that him and uh, Jimmy Taylor worked with the, worked for the Teamsters, right? right. And I, I thought about that because Ed Parton, you know, he really he looked out for he looked out for us. He did a, he did a great job. I have never forgotten. I always think about Ed Parton how he really looked out for us. Yeah. And I really appreciate him for that. So Billy had that experience, and he moved on from winning championships from a troubled young man, but from a great family. A mother and father who really cared, respected him, and showed him a lot of love. He the one chose to, you know, go the other direction, and he shares a lot of this in his book. And we do know that later on, that Billy got into some serious trouble, and uh, we know what all that what that's about. Would you want to share that right quick? Yeah, because I always wanted to know why would Billy Cannon do something like that? You know, because we knew he gambled. Uh, he he was a big horse fan, you know, he'd go to horse races, and when that incident happened, people thought it was because he was betting on horses and lost all his money. And that's what everybody thought for a long, long time, I mean, and so when they wrote the book, he got into details on, on, on what happened to him, which caused him to get into the trouble that he got into, and it was because the economy had fallen apart in the 80s. He had bought all type of real estate. And when, when the bottom fell out, he was in debt so bad. And that's how he got uh, involved with that counterfeit. There was a guy, I don't, I don't want to say too much about it, but there was a guy in Baton Rouge who had already been arrested for counterfeit. And he knew the guy. And the guy just made a comment to him and in joking. And Billy Cannon thought about it and he's like, well, maybe we should try that or something. And that's how he got caught up in that counterfeit thing. Is because his is uh because he had a very successful dental practice, but he was getting into real estate, and the bottom fell out, and that's why he got it uh, uh got into that counterfeit thing to try to make money to pay the debt that he owed on all the real estate that had fallen apart. But even as a young man, he was a pool hustler. He used to hang out at the pool hall, so he called himself like a pool shark. Figuring out ways to, to, to make a yeah. hustle. So he'd been hustling most of his life. And, you know, you and I both, <clears throat> you know, Billy got in some serious trouble, but you and I have went through different things in our lives. Uh, like, you know, I, I had to do time, too. So for Medicaid fraud, you went through some things that, that you was accused, uh, we're going to say falsely accused of something that caused you embarrassment, heartache, stress, and uh, your annual job. Right. So I guess we all, the three of us all have something in common. We all serve time. Yeah. <laughs> so I, we can add on to the, I guess what we, we have in common. We're going to be like Snoop and uh, who that was, and, uh, Master, and, uh, and uh, what, what his name is, uh, Tupac. Yeah. We're going to be the three most wanted. Then. We're the, <laughs> the three most wanted. Now, now you, just, just to kind of highlight your situation, that you went through quite a few years ago, and you finally got vindication this year, right? Well, no, it was. It took a whole year before I could go to court, and then, and, and it's, it's very rare that somebody that uh, that's arrested for soliciting a prostitute 
goes to court and fight it in court because it's, it's, it's a very low crime other than the publicity that you get. But I had no choice but to go to court and defend myself because I didn't do anything wrong. <clears throat> and, and luckily, uh, this undercover police officer that came up to me and started soliciting me, and this was on a Sunday afternoon at 6 o'clock in downtown Houston, right by the Toyota Center where the, where the Rockets play. You, you was going to a championship game? Well, it was the Final Four. Final I was four in Houston games. for the Final Four, and they play on that Saturday and that Monday, and what, this was what, a Sunday. What, what year was that? 2011. You talked about it 10 years ago. Exactly. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I interviewed Tick Price for the job at Southern, and I, I was in my motorhome at a campground 15 miles south of Houston. And after my interview with Tick Price, uh, I said, well, you know what? I need to go get something to eat, and it's a 15-mile drive to Houston. So I drove it to Houston downtown. It was a free concert or whatever when the concert was over. I said, I better get me something to eat before I take that 15-mile drive back to the campground where there's no place to eat, you know? So as I was walking, I stopped at the stoplight walking. It was about 6.30, 7 o'clock that afternoon. And some lady came from behind me and started soliciting me. And first thing I know, those police officers came out of nowhere, plainclothes police officers, grabbed me and handcuffed me and walked me to jail about three blocks. I was handcuffed walking down the street in Houston with three or four undercover cops on each side of me. And I'm walking down the street handcuffed, taking me to jail. And uh, <clears throat> so I had to, once I was released three days later, uh, Southern University fired me. So, so you was on lockdown for three days. You, you, you was stuck. Stuck. You, you, you they wouldn't let me out on bond. They said I was a flight risk. I couldn't believe it. I almost fell out. I had to see a judge with the video camera, you know, and, and he was in his office and I was standing there and, and he said, I'm going to deny your bail, your flight risk. I, I almost fainted. My knees buckled. I'm like, you go to, I live in Louisiana. Where can I go? And he said, well, look. You, I'll, and you're the AD of a, of, a, yeah. of a university. Yeah. And he said I was a flight risk. And then, uh, so then he said, well, look, let me see what I can do. He said, okay, Tuesday, I'll assign you to, to be arraigned Tuesday in court or whatever on that Tuesday. So they let me, let me out that Tuesday morning to go to court. And then, uh, you know, that process started. <laughs> but when I had to defend myself, Lyman, and that George Floyd thing that came out just brought back a lot of memories on what happened to me because in the police report, was totally different on what happened to George Floyd. And thank God that young lady had that camera because the police report and the camera, what we saw in the video, was not even close. Well, that was the same thing with me. That police officer's report was nothing, about, nothing like what happened. Her story was totally different about what happened. But what saved me was she was wired and the conversation was on tape. So when we, when we went to court, all I had to do, all my lawyers did was play the tape. And I testified, and normally when you're in court, uh, your lawyer don't normally let his client testify. So they know, we want you to go and testify and tell your side of the story. And all I did was go and told my side of the story. The jury went in, 34 minutes later, they came out, found me not guilty. 
So you had a jury. Had a jury trial. It was a jury trial, yeah. And whatever reason, a, a year later, that went unchecked, unnoticed, nobody, no publicity at all. No. Like, no, nobody, I, I knew about it because, you know, we all know right. each other, but very few people knew that you had been vindicated. Right. That you had. You it know. didn't have near the amount of publicity that I received when the incident happened. So a year later, when I'm vindicated, the Morning Africa did a great job. They did a big story, but ESPN didn't do anything. I even called ESPN. I'm like, hey, man, you guys need to say something about this because they blew me up when it happened. And they didn't even mention I was vindicated. And so Southern University had long let you go. Uh, within the first month, Southern University let you, first no, couple of weeks. No. On my way back from Houston, they called me and told me I was fired. So you didn't even get back I to didn't work. Even, I didn't even make it back to campus. They called me as I was driving back to Baton Rouge and told me I was fired. Did, didn't you hear, hear your story? No. So, well, we, we want to get into more of that. No, well, that <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, now you can see what we have in common with Billy yeah, Cannon. Yeah, so, I know so we, we kind of went no, a different but, direction but, here, but you can see. But that, that you know, we all had a long, long run in some way with the law, some way right. or another. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a long, long run, but it's a long, long run with the law. That's yeah. how we gonna look at it. Yeah. But we, we all came out of it unskilled and harmed, and able to sit here and talk about it. And I'm I'm excited that you were able to sit here and share that book with me, because the book was written by uh, how you pronounce that name, Charles D. Guerrero's. The Gravelis. The Gravelis. Yeah. I can't pronounce that. So it's a great book. Uh, we know a lot of you all might have wrote, written, uh, read the book by now, but a lot of you have not. And uh, and I'm more than sure that the Cannon family uh, would love for you to uh, buy the, purchase the book, read their dad, their grandfather's story. Uh, it's a great story. He's a great man. A great human being, and we—I truly enjoyed it. I learned a lot, and I really thank you, uh, Greg, for sending me the book. That's one other part I wanted to share about the book, and it just seemed escaped me right now that I really enjoyed about the book because it talks a lot about a lot of guys from Calvert High, Baton Rouge High, who end up all playing at LSU. They all end up playing for one rap. The interesting thing Gus about Kitchen. They all played against each other in high school when he was at Ostruma and Baton Rouge High was their biggest rivalry. And when he got to LSU, those stars from uh, Baton Rouge High, uh, Don, uh, Don Norwood, yeah. uh, Warren Rabb. Warren Rabb was the quarterback, yeah. yeah. Gus and, Kitchen, you know, right. different, different people like that. And they all played together at LSU. And that would made such a great team. They, they, they all was great high school stars. They played against each other, so they were right. very competitive. Also, I saw where at the end of the book, well, one of our coaches, Scooter Purvis, Don Purvis, I had no clue played play with Billy Cannon. He was the backup running back to Billy yeah, Cannon. I had no clue. I didn't I knew I knew Coach Purvis played running back, but I didn't realize he was the backup to Billy Cannon either. And, and nothing, until I read the book. Out of Mississippi. So I mean right. and we and Coach Purvis coached LSU while we were there for three years, so we had a chance to get to know him. He was a he was a hard worker. He was a deep right. defensive back coach at the yeah. time. And uh, he, he worked his guys hard. He got the most out of it. And, you know, when you had your interview with Coach Lynn LeBlanc, uh, Coach LeBlanc played offensive tackle, and I didn't realize – I mean, I knew he played on that championship team because he wore his ring. 
But when I heard your interview with Coach LeBlanc, I didn't realize he started the whole time he was at LSU. That, that would, except his senior year. He didn't start his senior year. Yeah, yeah. He, he started uh, sophomore, junior year, because he couldn't play he as a freshman. freshman. That's correct. He said sophomore, junior year, senior year, he had a little competition, he said. Yeah. But uh, he, I mean, he gave a, he was, his story was so great. I coached, he was my coach. And, uh, you know, he, he really took care of me. So I can't complain yeah. about, about Coach LeBlanc. He just told me, don't get hooked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Line up. And that's what we did. And so once again, we thank uh, my dear friend, uh, confidant, Mr. Greg LaFleur, for uh, showing up today to do this interview and on the great Billy Cannon title of the book, A Long, Long Run. And uh, we're going to close it by saying it because of all three of us, we all had a long, long run with the law. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but we thank you, Greg. Thank you for being here and sharing the, uh, your book, sharing this book with Billy Cannon with us. Thank you, Brother LD. I really enjoyed this time together. All right. Now always remember this here. Man can shackle the hand. Man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. And I'd like to thank you for tuning in once again to Count Time Podcast. I'm Brother L. Diazobra. Thank you once again. Remember, it's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. Time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted.